Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. the Principles of Performance podcast. This is episode number 53, and I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to be here. It's another day in paradise. We've got another uh, great guest with a fantastic name today. I'm, I'm really excited about this guy and having him on. It's, it's an old friend, and uh, I'm really excited to learn from Doc today. So it's, it's going to be a good one for sure. Yeah, very interesting guy, Dr. Mike Hartle, because he's not only a chiropractic physician, but he's also a board-certified clinical nutritionist, uh, chiropractic sports physician, active release technique provider, and certified strength and conditioning coach. So he kind of covers a lot of different ground, and we're going to go into each one of those buckets as we go through. He's also a master Strong First certified instructor, and I think that's how you and, uh, and Mike had connected uh, with Strong First, and he's the co-developer of Strong First SFL Barbell Certification. Travels all over the country teaching barbell and kettlebell certifications, and he's currently uh, getting his PhD in exercise science. Um, he's also a national, former nationally ranked powerlifter, won several national ta- uh, titles. He was a vice president for two years and drug testing chairman for five years, also chairman of the sports medicine committee for USA Powerlifting for over 20 years, and uh, just has a ton of background in in powerlifting, doing 705 in the squat, 535 in the bench, 635 in the deadlift, and combined total of over 1,800 pounds, and and that was all 275. And and then he also has uh, an interesting uh, sidebar that he played uh, semi-professional football for 10 years, all right, as a defensive tackle. His his Adam County Patriots won the national 2A semi-pro championship in 2008 and were undefeated for two years straight. So very interesting, and I can't wait to dive in and learn a whole bunch of stuff from this guy. Dr. Hartle, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. It's great to be with you both. So we're going to we're going to dive right in, Doc. Uh, you know, a huge part of your life has been dedicated to strength training. So uh, and there's several different contexts, of course, starting with injury risk and uh, injury prevention. And there's a, a lot of misguided sort of fears about strength training. Um, you know, there are certain things that we can and cannot control, uh, you know, but as a clinician, talk about the relationship between strength and musculoskeletal health. Well, that's interesting because, you know, a lot of patients, uh, when they come in and see me, they're more interested in me doing for them. But I also tell them it's a partnership. It's, it's I got my part, but you got your part as well, too. Um, one of the things we do is we do, uh, we do a rehab in our office here. Uh, we use uh, the FMS along with some other tests to basically do an assessment, see where they're weak, where they're strong, and then we focus on the weak areas. And I tell them that's you doing that at home is just as important, even more important than what I do for you in the office. But the two things are synergistically related. 
and we'll get you better. Um, I can only get you so much better uh, with treatments. You have to get the other part better as well, too. It depends on where you want to go with that. Um, I remember when I first got into practice in 93, uh, way before we had running water and electricity, um, that we, back then, I think it was American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a, with a, a, a statement saying uh, they don't want kids lifting weights until they're 18 years of age. And it just blew my mind because... You know, you see kids playing uh, ice hockey. My kids played ice hockey. My youngest son started when he was three years old. You know, in Canada, they almost put you on skates before you even start walking. Um, so you, but you, when you get on skates, you fall down. There's a lot of forces going through the young body, even though they're young. Um, when uh, my um, former person also worked on a farm, she used to carry around uh, slop and all that kind of stuff for the animals, you know, 50, 40 pound uh, buckets of, uh, of slop. And they would do that for the animals. And she was like eight years old. So she's lifting weights, but not lifting weights in a gym setting kind of thing. So people need to realize that, you know, lifting weights or getting stronger is very healthy for the individual. But on the other end of the age spectrum, it will also tend to keep you, if you maintain your strength, you might keep out of the nursing home or assisted living at a longer time. Maybe instead of going into it at age 75, you go into it at age 85 because you're able to be home and do those activities of daily life, those ADLs. All right. So next question we want to get to is we're going to kind of turn water into wine here. We're going to take Twitter arguments, which is generally a good way to waste your day. Uh, and we're going to try to learn something from it. So the, one of the ones that's always out there is what is strong enough, right? And are, are there some markers or minimums that you use to know when we've kind of checked that box that strength for a given sport or activity is, is enough or, or do we need more? Well, you said I'm a master instructor of Strongford, so obviously, you know, Mike and I both work with Pablo extensively, and so I'll never forget at the very first uh, SFL barbell certification in Italy in 2013, uh, we came up with these strength tests for the to become certified, and they're a uh, double bodyweight Della for men and a 1.25 uh, bodyweight bench press for men, and Pablo said, Doc, we should not call that strength test, we should call those not-so-weak tests. And I just sat there and just laughed. Uh, but the thing is, is that, you know, it, it's every, every sport's different. Uh, Mike, you work a lot with MMA fighters uh, with that. So you have a different aspect of what you consider they're strong or strong enough to do that MMA, but it's not strong enough, let's say, for them to be able to compete in, uh, say, hockey or even football. Um, football is a lot of forces happen at every every snap of the ball. Uh, as a defensive tackle, you know, when I played my first year of semi-pro football, I was 30, 38 years old. You know, my best squat was 705. I just did that the year prior. Um, so I had a lot of absolute strength, but I had almost zero strength endurance. I could not last, you know, three hours of playing football in the summer heat. Um, so I had to actually change that to more strength endurance. So I had to let go of some of that absolute strength. But still, I was probably one of the stronger guys in the league, pound for pound, for that. But I had to have that because there's a lot of forces coming at me as a defensive tackle. And I had to be able to be resilient enough so I could play every game every week. Plus being 38 years of age, you know, my body's a little bit older than when I was 18 years old. So if I get an injury, it's going to take me a little bit longer to recover. So the stronger I go into the season, the better. So, you know, it depends as far as, as Stu McGill likes to say, it depends. Um, you know, it's one of those things that depends on the sport you're doing. Um, I hope that answers your question there. Somewhat, and, and I guess a follow-up to that would be, um, I guess truly being strong, and I know from, from reading some of Pavel's work, truly being strong is you can walk into a bunch of different domains and express that strength as opposed to the specificity of I'm really good at two or three lifts, correct? Right, exactly. And that's very specific there. So, 
again, you know, if you're, let's say you uh, you go to the SFB, the body weight certification is strong first. You learn all about body weight stuff. Okay. Um, with doing that, you can become a very strong individual and live a very healthy life for a long time, never touching a kettlebell, never touching a dumbbell, never touching a barbell the rest of your life. Um, but at the same time, too, you can also become very strong doing the barbell. So, for example, uh, when I was getting learning to do kettlebells in 2006, you know, it was it was fairly easy for me to go to my first kettlebell certification in Pablo because I was backing down from my powerlifting. So, being that I squatted 705, even if I had uh, two 48 kilo kettlebells, it was only a 212 pound front squat. Now, handling those 248s was was quite challenging uh, to do that, but still is it's it's not it doesn't have the level of strength to be able to do as far as the, the back squat. Um, but again, yeah, so it depends as far as what your sports specificity is with that. So. So, you know, one of the things that I like that you talked about, Doc, is you were saying you need more strength endurance. But if you didn't have strength to begin with, you couldn't have developed that strength endurance. So that's why it's it's a fantastic master quality. And uh, that's one of the things that, you know, we we obviously teach within the strong first curriculum. But we're going to we're going to kind of talk about a little bit of something different now. Um, unilateral versus bilateral training, um, you know, and, and, and again, I know in, in a powerlifting world, you know, unilateral training is, is not necessarily, it's not that it's not used, but it's not focused on depending on where you're at in, in, you know, powerlifting, et cetera. But is there any merit to focus on focusing on, uh, one or the other? That's sort of question number one. Um, and how does a heavy pistol and a heavy barbell squat, uh, how do they differ, but not only from a developmental standpoint, but from a joint stress and a force production standpoint? All right, so your first question, unilateral versus bilateral. Yeah, uh, yes, in powerlifting, both feet are planted on the ground. It's a bilateral sport very strongly. Uh, I'm going to use me as a personal example here. So back in 2002, I started developing some right glute med uh, QL issues there. And every time I did the squat or the duff, I had some significant pain. Um, so at that time, I was actually, we built out our gym. We we're doing going to do, start doing some physical therapy in our office. So I flew out to L.A. and spent a day with Craig Liebenson, and he put together as far as an assessment for me, but he also assessed me, too. And what he found was that my balance on my right leg sucked. It was like maybe I could go two or three seconds. That's it. On my left leg, 20 seconds, I could go longer. So there was a major asymmetry going on between the two legs, even though I was a bilateral sport athlete. So I had to start training unilateral. So it started opening my eyes up to that. Um, let's go to the sport of football, for example. You get a running back. Yes, they use both legs, but only one leg is on the ground at a time when they're running. They have to be very strong. So if there's a significant weakness between right and left, you need to be able to address that. Uh, there was a famous running back, I can't remember the name, a couple of years back, and his trainer came out and said, we spent a lot of time working on unilateral strength there because he is constantly on one leg for most of what he does out there. You know, an offensive lineman, a little bit different. You may be on both legs being, you know, being hit by a defensive tackle, but you need to have both unilateral and bilateral. Even in the sport of powerlifting where my feet are planted, they're not even moving. I need to have both bilateral strength and unilateral strength. Okay. Um, back to your second question, the pistol squat and the barbell squat. So another example is at the level two kettlebell, uh, Pavel looked at me doing the pistol squat. I was having some difficulty kind of getting in the proper positions as doc you're back squatting your pistol. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, your, your spine is, is perfectly neutral and it's not even moving and yet you're trying to do a pistol. So you need to have that ability to flex the spine a little bit. And the joint stresses on a pistol, in my opinion, are probably almost, could be potentially higher than a back squat. 
uh, back sweat generally only go below parallel. Um, you have, especially if you're going, uh, say, a true low bar back squat, you're maybe going maybe knee flexion, maybe 90, 95 degrees, maybe 100 degrees. Whereas a pistol, you can go basically hamstring the calf. Um, so the, the amount of force there is different in joint stress. But at the same time, again, for someone who does a lot of unilateral in their sport, so for example, soccer players, one of the things I tell them they come in as patients all the time is you need to be able to be able to kick with both feet. If you're a right-footed kicker, that means you're always planning with your left and you're kicking with your right. That puts significant stress on one side of your body asymmetry, but that's part of the sport. If you're never kicking with your left foot, planning with your right, you're going to have some asymmetry and some probably some issues going on with your hip and pelvis, maybe abs, uh, groin issues down the road with that. Same thing in hockey. So another Twitter debate that was raging probably about a year or so ago is, is uh, Mike Boyle uh, had put out something talking about orthopedic costs. And it still shocks me to this day that that's actually a debate because it's, it's something that we mentioned in our course, we just called it structural costs, is that everything does have a certain amount of stress. It's not necessarily always a bad thing is it's how we keep joints healthy. But if we're looking for the person who's looking for just good general physical preparedness and general fitness, and we're trying to maximize results with minimizing that orthopedic costs, um, what are some of the things that we look at when we're looking for that person who doesn't have the specificity of being a powerlifter or, or even an athlete, but we're looking for general fitness, what are some ways that we can try to maximize results with minimizing that orthopedic or structural cost? Well, again, if, if they're not a powerlifter or an athlete, you know, they can do bodyweight stuff. Uh, for example, just even doing bodyweight squats. One of the things uh, in the United States is that we tend to have the greatest number of hip and knee replacements in the world of any country. Uh, I was teaching in Korea a number of years ago, and we were in Seoul. We were walking up a street, and up about two blocks, there was a guy sitting in front of his store in a uh, butt-to-the-ground squat, smoking a cigarette on a cell phone, talking, just sitting there. And we walked up to him and passed him, and he was still sitting in that bodyweight squat. So his calves were touching his hamstrings, butt was about a couple inches off the ground, and he was maybe 60, 70 years of age. There's not too many people in the United States who are 60 and 70 years of age who can actually do that kind of squat, even one rep, none, even regarded as being able to stay down there for a long period of time. So again, even just being able to maintain these things that you did as an 18 year old, sorry, 18 month old baby, when you started squatting all the time and you sat there for 20 minutes, these are things you need to hopefully maintain the rest of your life. Working on mobility is a big thing. Uh, that also then of course helps stability as well too. And doing these things will make, give you a bit, life full of uh, being able to do everything you want to be able to do well that's that's another misnomer is that the, that strength and, and mobility and, and quality movement are actually antithetical when they really shouldn't be uh if anything it should fortify that like if you look at the olympic lifters they're other than gymnasts probably the most mobile athletes in the olympics true that's very true yeah i agree so You've brought up a couple of times uh, the the use of alternate methods other than just the barbell. And, and so I have a bunch of questions off of that. So for that general fitness person, how much, if at all, do they even really need to touch the barbell? <laughs> um, if, if you're a normal average person as far as working in an office all day, you know, getting some kettlebells, getting some dumbbells. Uh, even some sandbags, those are just adequate for home. If you want to have a home gym, those are fine. You never really need to touch a barbell in that regard. Um, I got interested in barbell because back then when I was in high school, that's what we all did in high school. Uh, we then, uh, then I moved on to a gym after I got out of high school and I stayed with barbell. As a matter of fact, 
it wasn't until I was even done powerlifting that I met Pavel and went to his first kettlebell certification. So um, it was at that time that I started widening my thing. I knew about dumbbells, knew about barbells, but again, you don't necessarily need to use barbells. Um, you don't have to go join a, a Planet Fitness or any other place like that. You can buy a couple of kettlebells. I would recommend you get some good training from an instructor who knows what they're doing. That will shorten your learning curve as far as being able to do things and probably even prevent some injuries from occurring. Um, but again, just, you know, kettlebells, dumbbells, sandbags are perfect for a home gym. Now, is there a ceiling to that? Like, do you think you can't get as strong, as powerful as maybe you did um, if you didn't have access to barbells and then how much of that was the specificity of just actually doing those lifts? Well, that's true. I mean, you know, for example, I mentioned earlier about if I did, uh, if I had two, two 48 kilo kettlebells, that's 212 pounds. And let's say I was able to do a kettlebell, five reps in a kettlebell front squat, that's 212 pound front squat. Um, barbell, I've gone up as high as 350 pounds for, for five in the front squat, you know, um, there's nothing in the kettlebell world that will get my bench press you know, up from say 200 pounds to 500 pounds. I had to have sports specificity as far as with the barbell with that. Um, so there is some things where I wanted to, obviously in my sport, we had to use the barbell. So I became very strong with that. Uh, but there's also some, you know, carryover effect of even being able to play football of having that strength and being able to uh, increase my ligament and joint cartilage strength as well too. That's one thing I've always been blessed with is good, strong knees. And I've had 300 pound guys roll in the side of each knee and nothing's happened to my knees. And I think part of that is one, I have some genetics aspect, but also two, with all the heavy squatting and deadlifting, it made my knees very strong, almost almost bulletproof if you want to use that term. Uh, but again, if you want to become stronger, I would recommend you want to get involved with having, having some barbell at work in, in your life as well, too. And then one last kind of different uh, viewpoint uh, on this is how much carryover can you get from doing non-barbell work into those other lifts. And, and so uh, in Pavel's work, he talks about the, the what the hell effect that, you know, you step away from deadlifting and do nothing but say swings and, and deadlifts. And then you go back to your, uh, your barbell work and all of a sudden you're stronger. Um, talk about some of that carryover where you don't necessarily have to do those lifts all year round to get better at those lifts. Well, you mentioned about uh, sports specificity here. With doing that, obviously, if I want to become strong in a deadlift, I have to know how to deadlift. But let's say I take two weeks off from deadlift and I did some uh, heavy double kettlebell swings, okay? Most likely, my deadlift will not suffer in numbers from that. I'll actually come back even have even a five or 10-pound boost uh, to my numbers with that because, one, I decrease the stress on my body from not doing barbell deadlifts, but then I change the stress with the hip hinge aspect of doing a kettlebell swing and actually enhanced my lockout. And I found that actually when I started playing football that I started doing double kettlebell swings and my lockout at the deadlift when I did barbell deadlifts improved. It improved at a stronger rate than it did when I was actually powerlifting. So um, and, and a little bit of re regret aspect, I wish I had known about kettlebells when I was a powerlifter, but I did. But um, you can have some carryover with that. Matter of fact, uh, I wrote a section in the barbell manual about training with barbells and kettlebells. And even if you have someone who wants to maybe do two weeks of barbell, two weeks of kettlebells, two weeks of barbell, two weeks of kettlebell, you know, you can maintain a high level of strength with that. So doc, uh, so the question I have is when it comes to using these different implements, sort of the underlying factor here is movement competency, right? Like it doesn't really matter what you use if you don't move well. So 
where does movement competency play a role with with health and in performance as well? Well, obviously, you need to have as far as the range of motion to do something. Um, if your sport requires you to have, you know, 180 degrees of uh, shoulder flexion and you only have 120, you're going to have issues when you go past 120 and possibly hurting that joint aspect. Um, if you, uh, let's say you a power lifter, okay, and let's say you need to go below parallel, but every time you get about two inches above parallel, you start to do the, the butt wink, you start flexing the lumbar spine. Um, and that will actually cause you some issues down the road because you could actually uh, hurt the L5-S1 disc. You can cause problems with that. So again, having as far as movement competency is very important. Um, so I'd recommend, so I, for example, I have a patient of mine who, you know, he wants to learn how to do kettlebell front squats. So I've taught him how to do that. But when he gets about four inches above parallel, he starts to do a butt wink, he starts to shift. So we work that good range of motion. Meanwhile, at home, he's working on his uh, both static stretching and mobility, and he's actually slowly improving. Now we're down to three inches above parallel. So he's actually improving all that, and that's why we're improving performance, but also will reduce injury too. Very cool. So um, so the question I have, you mentioned this earlier, kind of at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, you're, you're Cairo, so people come to you and, and you know, you – you do manual work, you do adjustments and you ART, all that other stuff. Um, but then again, you mentioned, Hey, look, you got to do, you got to do this stuff on your own. Um, when it comes to changing movement and, and, you know, giving, giving individuals homework, what does that generally look like? Have you found any sort of magic recipe or any sweet spot to say, Hey, do this, 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 and this. And, and like, as far as adherence goes, what have you found that has been the most successful for your, your clients and patients as far as homework? Um, well, one of the things I always tell them is I say, you know, for example, this one lady has really, uh, pretty strong low back pain right now. So I tell her, and she wakes up in the morning with a lot of back pain. But we found in some other situations with her that when she does spends time before bed doing her low back stretches, she doesn't have, she has less pain in the morning. So I recommend it to her. Well, why don't you attach it to your brushing your teeth? You have this bedtime routine. We all have our bedtime routines. Just give yourself an extra 10 minutes or so, brush your teeth, do your stretches, go to bed. Because even when I'm tired, I said, yes, because that actually helps improve you in the morning and allows you to sleep better. And we all know that sleeping is a huge recovery aspect. So we want to be able to recover in a stronger way. So in that regard, so each patient I find has their own, a lot of people have similar uh, triggers or whatever regarding positive triggers in that regard, but each person is different. Um, for example, when I tell give patients their rehab exercises, I tell them, I want you to do these exercises uh, seven days a week. Now, between you, me, and the fence post, you know that probably means they'll probably get them down to four days a week. Yeah. But if I tell them to do three days a week, they may do it one day a week. And so I hope, you know, some people, I actually have a couple of people who do it seven days a week, never take a day off because they know the benefits of it. They see the benefits. And sometimes some patients, when they do it four days a week, like, well, I'm starting to feel a little bit better. But when I don't do it on Saturday and Sunday, I feel worse on Monday morning. So I'm going to do them on Sunday. I'll take Saturday off. So they start figuring that stuff out themselves. Um, but each person is different and it's almost more, uh, psychological, but then the psychological turns into a physical uh, manifestation in the fact that they're actually improving better down the road. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. 
Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Now, one thing that I've seen and learned over the years in, in trying to work on improving people's movement uh, and that I've kind of evolved over the years with is what I've kind of find is what I call this lost valley between mobility and strength, there's this big gap of stability and control. And it's often, you know, just look completely glazed over where, as you mentioned, most people say, and you probably get this all the time where it's like, my back hurts, can you give me some stretches? And so automatically assume that it's flexibility that they need, or what do I need to do to strengthen? But meanwhile, somewhere in between there, stability is what kind of locks in that mobility, but it also provides a platform for strength. And, and the thing that always stuck out in my mind was, uh, in, in learning from Charles Poliquin early on, he said, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. So talk about the, the bridge from where stability not only locks in that mobility, or as our mentor, Greg Cook says, he kind of hits save on the document, but it also sets up the foundation to build strength off of. Well, it's a good point, because uh, I agree with you that, that we have a patient who uh, has a left anterior hip pain, pretty strong, but she is also a soccer player, and she always kicks with her right foot, never their left foot. So when her left leg plants, that leg is acting as a stable aspect with that. And so her right leg has, has mobility from the kicking, but her left leg is stability, but she's got some issues in her left hip joint, so we're actually addressing that. So one of the reasons I said, I said, you're probably, this over here on your left side is working triple overtime. Your right side's hardly working. So we got to get both aspects there. So we got to develop some more stability on the right side while developing more mobility on the left side. And when the two come together, then things are a lot stronger with that and she'll be a better athlete. Plus she also needs to change how she does sports. She needs to start learning how to kick with her left foot. Um, and which is kind of, you know, it's like me writing with my left hand versus my right hand. That'd be very weird for me to be able to do but if I did it for six months, I'd probably be able to write just as well with my left hand as my right hand. Of course, my staff would still say they, say they can't read my handwriting, so there's that issue too. But um, but again, yes, yeah, stability and mobility are very strong. And that's one of the reasons why one of the very first tests we do in our rehab assessment is the FMS. And it, even though it's a screen, it still tells me how they're moving. Uh, someone might score a three on an inline lunge on one side, but score a horrible one on the other side. Um, and that tells me, obviously, they have some strong mobility issues going on there. Uh, but again, we got to work as far as on the stability aspect. So the active straight leg is 1-1. We got to work on developing the stability before we can move forward. And like you mentioned earlier, Pablo has the what the hell effect. You know that all of a sudden their deep squat, which is a 1, now turns into a 2. And you did absolutely no squatting because you've got their active straight leg raise to improve. Uh, so increasing the stability and mobility are very important as far as developing, as far as getting the patient moving down the road. And I also say it's the Lost Valley because I, the people that I often get who are the ones who refer to me that come to me and say, well, I've tried everything and nothing works. When I look at their, their history and then I look at something like their movement screen and they come up aces in the mobility test, like they have threes in their shoulder mobility and the leg raise. They have really good mobility, when we, especially when we test them passively, but then actively we look at things like their Y balance test or their balance or their, their stability and they're terrible. And the reason why they fail these other modalities is, and I'm sure you've seen this in, in, your, in your clinical practice, is that so much of it is mobility bias. It's so much of it is getting joints to move, getting getting tissues to be more more uh, pliable, and it's not reinforcing that with the motor control and the, the the neurological aspects of being able to actually know what to do with that naive range of motion. Right, and that's actually going back to strength. That's where adding some strength, like even teaching them a simple kettlebell deadlift. 
uh, is very good to do because by doing that, you're actually teaching them more about tension and you develop some in, innate stability with that. Obviously, there's other exercises they need to do besides that. But by developing that strength, also now they're able to do the scoring, not ones and ones on their active straight leg raise, but now they're scoring twos. And then, of course, obviously, like I said, the mobility things will improve as well, too. But yeah, I see all the time people score threes and deep squat, threes on the you know inline lunge, but then score ones on the active straight leg raise or trunk stability push up. Um, but it needs to change, you know, dramatically if they're also going to help with their pain levels and get them to become uh, better individuals. Okay, so we want to start shifting gears and, and leaning into some of your nutrition background. Mm -hmm. um, beyond just meeting calorie demands, how would someone's approach differ for goals for, say, body composition versus performance? If someone was, let's say, playing a sport, soccer, hockey, um, even football without having a weight class involved there, you know, generally you, if what I tell athletes is you want to eat a lot of food, especially if you're training hard during the summertime. Uh, but you also want to be able, for example, like the, the normal, that now like 1.5 to 2 grams per pound of body weight of protein. That's a lot of protein to eat. Um, you need to be able to do that. If you're doing for someone who's body composition, what I would do is I would reduce that down to probably 1 to 1.25, maybe 1.5 grams. Um, I would actually decrease as far as how many, my personally, I would decrease how many carbs eat, but it depends on their sport. So for example, I found out playing football that I was, I don't eat a keto diet, more like a paleo type diet, but I found that I needed to increase my carbs uh, because I actually, I hit the wall one time at football practice. I was just running my butt off and I just, I increased my carbs. So I did it by like a half a cup of rice a day and actually improved my training. And actually still, I was able to decrease my body composition as far as my body fat percentage. Um, so it depends on the sport you're doing, obviously. Um, if you're a marathon runner, you need to have more carbohydrates. Uh, but again, also doing the strength training also goes in with nutrition because you need to put the stress on the body for the nutrition to do its job to actually help um, recover from that. So tying in the strength training with the nutrition, uh, when you do have someone where size and, you know, especially like in Mike's sport where there's weight classes where we need to get them as strong as possible, but we have to be careful to not put on muscle. How do we then manage that from the training side to build as much relative strength as possible without tipping the scales and adding more lean tissue? Um, as you mentioned, I'm going through my PhD, so I'll be getting that in a couple of years. But again, one of the things I want my research studies I want to do down the road, for example, in the SFL, but just in life in general, when you look at the deadlift, most people train the barbell deadlift as a concentric only lift, it means you lock out the top, let the bar free fall to the ground with your hands on it. Uh, whereas the back squat, for example, is a major hypertrophy exercise where you have an eccentric followed by a concentric. So it seems to be the lifts that do not have an eccentric component to it that you do not put on a lot of muscle. So let's say I had a marathon runner come, he want to do some lifting, but he didn't want to gain weight because the more weight he gains, that means he has to carry that over 26.2 miles. I'm going to give them some barbell dose, maybe four sets of triples, you know, very low, low volume, uh, low reps. We want to just do the deadlift and then move on. Um, even the, the uh, military press is a great exercise because uh, for the most part, even if you just did some heavy singles or even heavy doubles, you're doing very low reps. And you're also basically the first rep is a concentric only lift. Um, so it seems to be you know, that if you're going to do lifts that have an eccentric, then I would actually probably keep it around doubles and triples with that. Um, but if you start going to fives and sixes and even eight reps, uh, barbell cardio, like I like to call it, um, you're now going to be risking as far as hypertrophy, which means you're going to gain muscle mass based on what you said there. Now, talk yeah, a little bit about the, I'm sorry, Mike, but talk a little bit about the interference effect that you may have when you have goals that, that may be somewhat, you know, uh, 
contradictory, whether you, you know, you're trying to gain muscle and lose body fat, or you're trying to change your body composition, but you're also trying to perform at the same time. Well, if you're trying to change your body, you may have to reduce your calories. Obviously, your, your calories out need to be much greater than your calories in. Uh, there was a study, and I don't remember who actually performed it many years ago, and I think they put they put people on like 1,500-calorie diets, and they had two groups. They had a control group, which did no exercise. The other group, which did moderate uh, lifting exercise, barbell, dumbbell, whatever. And what they found was that the people who did the moderate exercise lost body fat lost body weight but did not lose any lean muscle mass people who did no no exercise lost body fat lost weight but also lost lean muscle mass so the the key factor there is doing some type of exercise and some type of resistance training with that um, obviously you have to figure out as far as what their weight class is and how much weight they need to lose um, but again if you do some moderate exercise with decreasing your calories and hopefully the calories you do have are very important as far as the crucial ones, protein, fats, a little bit of carbs, depending on your sport, then you need to be focusing on that. Um, so quick question for you, Doc. So the what the hell effect. Um, have you noticed that um, when you are working with specific modalities, um, let's say, uh, you know, you mentioned like for, for Gen Pop. Um, kettlebells and, uh, you know, sandbags and dumbbells were sort of an entry-level tool. Um, do you have a, do you have a certain point in which you say, Hey, you know what? I, I think you should really move to a barbell. Is there like a, a deciding factor? Is it based off of the goal of the individuals? Is it based off of the people that you're coaching, whether or not you decide to move them onto the barbell or is it just specific on the individual? It's specific on the individual, but basically what I would do nowadays, back so before I went to Pavel's first or kettlebell certification, um, I just started people on barbells, not a problem with that. Um, now, I actually start people on kettlebells. Uh, one, I have a lot of kettlebells in my gym. It's very easy to teach that. One of my things is I want to make sure they can do, for example, a goblet squat fairly well. They're just keeping their spine neutral, knees, track, and toes. Um, they're doing all these different things. So once they can do something like that, then we can move them into possibly a type of squat, a zercher squat, front squat, back squat, you know, low bar, high bar, all those different things with that. So those are good, but they want to be able to do certain factors, even, even aside from doing the assessment earlier on, we want to make sure they can actually perform in a good way. So my, my, one of my go-tos is, is a goblet squat. Um, I also like to teach to get up as well, too. Those are two kind of basic things, because once they do both, they generally have good lower body and upper, upper body mobility. When they can do that, then they can probably move into barbell. Um, now, their goals, let's say I had a kid who wanted to play high school football. I still would start him on kettlebells. I would start him on, uh, you know, kettlebell swings and get up. So once he can do those fairly well, then we might move into doing barbell down the road. But again, my goal is, as, a, as a strength coach, but also as a chiropractic physician is to prevent injury, but increase performance. And so when I look, look at those two goals, I want to be able to, you know, assess that and give it to the person. Now, if they don't like them, then, you know, you have to go find someone else. That's just the way it is. But also too, it's, it's, it's not only their bodies, but it's also my reputation. So we want to make sure we get their bodies healthy as well as possible and get them performing better. So two things you mentioned there um, were getting people started and then also mitigating injury risk. And one of the things that that's also been talked about quite a bit is, is the use of isometrics um, and being able to, uh, you know, there's some theories of, of how that might actually improve some tendon and ligament strength, but also, you know, from what we found, at least in terms of our progressions, 
is it's easier to learn when there aren't all these moving parts. And can you just hang at the bottom of a goblet squat and breathe for, for you know, five or six good deep breaths? Can you do a straight arm hang before we go and do a pull up? Talk about how you see isometrics having some value on both ends for starting someone off as a beginner as part of the learning curve, as well as where it may play a role in actually building healthier tissues. Well, you had mentioned as far as isometric, like say a, a, a hanging, hanging raise or hanging from bar. Okay. But that's at the end of the range of motion. Um, are you also talking about the isometrics in the middle of the motion? Are you referring to that as well too? Both. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we'll, we'll kind of progress from the bent arm to a, from a straight arm to a bent arm hang. And then once you get through kind of both of those ends of the spectrum, then we can start to introduce the, the chin-ups right. and pull-ups. So I can, I can certainly see that in the beginning of an athlete. Um, for example, if I had a, um, if I had a guy who wanted to learn how to do barbell back squat and delt, not power, but just wanted to learn how to do that, I would teach him the basic moves first. I would get him used to doing those moves very well. For example, uh, my two older sons, when they are around nine, nine years old each, uh, we had them start squatting with a dowel rod, basically a curtain rod you buy at Lowe's or whatever. And we had them do that until they could do that until they could do it well. Now, down the road, what I would do is introduce some isometric aspect. I would tell them when I, when I say stop, I want you to stop the movement. So we would do halfway down with the back squat. I'd say stop and have them pull it there. But they had to maintain as far as their core involvement, their glutes involved, everything that would be involved with that. Um, as far as what you said about doing a, doing a pull up, you do a, a dead hang. So they're hanging from that, but they're getting used to their hands being around the barbell. And they go to a set of bent arm hang is what you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then that actually teaches attention to become stronger there. But hope, but are you? But in that regard, I would also have them do as far as some some pull-ups, even if they needed some assisted pull-ups with that. I would actually have them go through the range of motion because neuromuscular, they they need to be able to be able to get that pathway set in their brain synaptically to be able to, be able to do the pull-up down the road. Okay, so you brought up tension. Let's talk about you know one of the the biggest things that I've taken away from studying some of Pavel's work is his his tech his tension feeding techniques which are which are really elegant and brilliant in times of terms of teaching people how to do things like grab the ground and breathe behind the shield and so forth um in that i think what, one of the things I, the biggest thing i see in working with high school athletes is that they it's just and even beyond that it's just an a to b journey that they're looking at i, I call it, i said all you're thinking about is going from a to b you're not thinking about the tension you're bringing to that path and that's really what's going to make it be the difference maker from the people who, who kind of maybe get a little strong versus the people who get really strong. So talk about the, the importance of, of that intent and focus and the tension building techniques. Well, when I teach, for example, someone in the bench press, when you, a lot of people just put their hands around the bar and they just bench. But I tell them you're losing a certain part of that because if you grip the bar hard, like you're trying to get, you know, bend the bar, you're trying to also have white knuckles. What you're doing is you're setting a signal all the way up to the rotator cuff and everywhere else beyond that, that a big load is coming down the pipe. You're saying everything gets more stabilized and more packed. So when you bring the bar down to your chest and bring it back up, you're in a sense a healthier aspect. Okay. Um, you would I think Andy Bull is one who said lats, ab, and grip. Lats, abs, and grip. You get those three tension generators on, you're going to become stronger just by doing those three things. Even if you um, you're training by yourself at home, you don't have very good technique, you get your lats engaged very strongly, you get your abs on fire, you grip the bar very hard, you said grip the ground with your toes as well too, those things will actually generate the tension needed to do the lift even better. And it tends to be where irradiation goes through the whole body and allows you to be able to become stronger just with doing those things.
And then for the athletic population, if we can get that to happen more reflexively and less cognitively, that's even better. And, and so when you, when you, as soon as you said those three things, the, the, the grip and lats and abs, the first thing that came to my mind is, is the use of carries and how that has, now you have this perturbation of, of, of walking and moving. Talk about the use of carries uh, in that development. Well, carries are great because you. And, and the key thing I would say to people do carries is making sure that your posture is good. You shouldn't be leaning the head with forward, leaning forward the shoulders. If your posture is good, go ahead and do carries. We start people out on double carries, then we go to single carries, uh, then we go to maybe rack carries, maybe overhead carries, different things like that. But those those are more advanced movements of the carries. But the carries are great because I like doing them at the end of my training. My my students do at the end of their training, and it develops as far as not only a reflexively strong core throughout the body but allows you to be moving while you're doing it uh, most things like the well the back squat you're moving but again your feet are not moving uh, when your feet move it tends to make things move forward through your lower extremity all the way up to your hip and pelvis area which then allows you to become a stronger individual plus it's a great uh, end of workout uh, movement that actually can help get rid of some as far as the uh, byproducts of training and then another term that you said kind of tongue in cheek earlier that, that I made a note about is, is you joked about barbell cardio. Um, <laughs> you know, so we have a, a, a good common friend and Brett Jones has a, has a great oh, yeah. program called Iron Cardio. Yep. Um, talk about how we, uh, how the, the blending of strength and cardio work together and, and not antithetically um, in how we can bolster both, whether it's for health and longevity or for performance. Well, Brett did a great job at Iron Cardio. Uh, I know he uh, he went through a situation where he had cancer. He did, did all this stuff, and he came through it very strongly, and that Iron Cardio is a great program. So, um, again, when I talk about barbell cardio, I was going to speak about barbell. So, for example, you get a guy who wants to come in and do heavy sets of 10 in the back squat, okay? Generally, it isn't until about he gets to rep five or six where he starts working a little bit harder, and he gets to maybe eight, nine, or 10, where now he's pushing it. So the first reps, in a sense, are, in my opinion, are wasted energy. If you're going to do barbell, there really isn't much reason, with some small exceptions, that you want to go above five reps. Now, you go back to kettlebells. We do we have uh, the 100 rep snatch test. That's 100 reps in five minutes. Okay, that's a lot of freaking reps. Actually, I looked at Pablo one day. I said that the snatch test is 97 reps too many. And he just laughed, you know, because I was saying that as a power lifter, that regard. Um, but the but you're obviously using lighter weight. Uh, for example, doing kettlebell swings. You know, you could do 10 in the right hand, 10 in the left hand, one swing switch, boom, you get 20 reps done. And it takes maybe about 40 seconds to do that, maybe 35 seconds. And you get a heck of a lot of work with that. But you're also using lighter weight. So if I'm doing 124 kilo kettlebell, which is 53 pounds, move 10 on the right, 10 on the left, I'm doing a lot of volume, but the weight is low. So in a sense, I have no problem as far as if you want to work. And that's one of the things I, when I switched from being a power lifter to being a football player, I brought car, uh, kettlebells into my training aspect in addition to barbell. And I helped develop that strength endurance so that I could last for three hours on a football field and play that. So it depends, again, what your sports are. But like Donnie Thompson, who's a former partner, he used kettlebells. He used heavy double kettlebell swings, heavy double kettlebell front squats. And those actually enhanced his his um, powerlifting aspect. Into that. But he was not necessarily doing it in a cardio aspect. He was doing it more as a strength aspect. Well, that was going to be my next question. Do you think if you had had some small dosages of that in your powerlifting, it would have contra uh, contradicted your powerlifting work or would have enhanced it? 
Oh, it would have enhanced it. I can, I can't guarantee that, uh, but I would say that definitely in my dove because of the three lifts, my dove, I always say I was deadlift challenged. Uh, so when I was, I was always uh, get the subtotal, I had good numbers and I hung on for dear life in the deadlift. So when I saw what the double kettlebell swings did for my lockout in the deadlift, which I did not do that for that reason. I just did them as an exercise. And also I'm noticing, wait a minute, my deadlift lockout is even stronger than it was before. Um, that kind of told me that I read what Donnie Thompson, other people have done with that. So again, I, if I used it in a proper way, I think it would have been advanced my power can even more. Uh, probably would have been able to go over 1,900, maybe even 2,000 pounds uh, as far as that. But I decided to stop powerlifting for 20 years and do a different sport, and that's why I moved on to football. But it helped my football. And, and that is why, folks, we need to get outside of our silos uh, from time to time because there's so much to learn from, from other disciplines. Uh, before we start uh, wrapping things up, Mr. Perry, any more questions for Dr. Hartle? No, I mean, we, we covered a lot of stuff today. Uh, Doc, didn't you have a, a book or a book that's coming out or something that got recently released? Do you want to you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, Human Kinetics is publishing a book called Kettlebell Strength Training Anatomy. It'll be out in October. Um, it's a book. They have a bunch of strength uh, training anatomy or training anatomy uh, books out there. They have yoga. They have hockey. They got basketball, uh, bodybuilding, everything else. So this is the first kettlebell one. So I wrote the book um, over the last two and a half, three years. Um, and so they did a great job as far as working with me, being patient. And so we're getting that coming out here. So I'm looking forward to be on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. So it's got ebook, paper book, everything else. So I recommend if you want to learn more about kettlebells, it's nice because they actually have, they took photos, uh, here in my gym and they take them and they actually draw the anatomical aspects. So they draw the rectus femoris, they draw the quadratus uh, laborum, they draw all these different muscles that I said, this exercise tends to work with this, these muscles more. As, as you know, as you both know, when you work with any almost strength implement, you're using almost every muscle in the human body. But these, some muscles are more primary, some are secondary. So yes, that book's coming out. I'm very excited for it. Spectacular stuff. So yeah, I wanna, wanna absolutely thank you for your time, Dr. Hartle. This has been some great stuff and we'll definitely put the links where everybody can find out more about your work and, and uh, get that book as soon as it comes out. And wanna thank you, Mike, for, for being here with us as well for another awesome show. And I uh, wanna thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles Performance Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.